All right. So uh, I see some people lined up along the back. There's there's some chairs. You just just walk across the tops of people, and it'll be awesome. So uh, there's some stuff here, some stuff down here. So that'd be perfect. So awesome to see you guys this morning. Um, as I get underway, this is a this is a kind of a funny, not a funny, I don't know if it's funny, I think it's, it's a contemplative uh, Sunday for me because of the current conditions uh, around Redemption Church. Um, for the last couple of weeks now, uh, we've been engaged in an assessment process with uh, an outside group, the Slingshot Group. They are the group that's helping us find our new worship pastor. And so one of the things they do is they come in and they do an assessment of your church. They kind of look at everything that makes you tick. And, and then they kind of let you know from there things to work on, things you're good at, that kind of deal. And, and it's really weird because it's one of those things where you go, I want to know, but I don't really want to know. You know, like, like you kind of, assessments are tricky. It, it's like when Ellen's gone and I kind of dress myself for a Sunday morning and I ask my kids, how does this look, right? Like, you want to know, but you don't want to know. You want to hear that, oh, you look great. Not like, dad, wow, the 50s came a knocking. You know, so like... I want to know. And so, you know, sitting down with Dave, who is the liaison to, to the Slingshot group, uh, it's kind of funny because I'm like, all right, man, just lay it on me, lay it on me. But I swear, if you pick on anybody around here, I'm going to break your legs. You know, like, like you know, I, but, I, but I want to know, right? Now, now, that's the trickiness of an assessment, right? Because it's going to expose some things that, that you wish were different. It's going to affirm some things that you're really excited about. Uh, that's just the nature of what happens when you have this kind of thing done. Now, here's what's crazy. Imagine if Jesus himself, with all of his Xavier mental mind powers, came to assess your church. He could come in and he would know the church better than you know the church. If Jesus showed up today, he would know me better than I know me. To give the assessment you know Matt you, you you have this motivation you say it's all about Jesus before your ego really gets in there sometimes I'm like no stop the assessment right because he sees so perfectly and he sees so clearly well what's interesting is in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 what you find is seven churches going through an assessment and Jesus himself is the assessor he comes onto the scene, he peers deep into their heart, their mind, their soul, their actions, their attitudes, their affections. He sees everything with perfect clarity. And the Jesus that shows up for this assessment is not the Jesus you color in Sunday school. All right? It's not this, uh, you know, kind of mild-mannered, soft-spoken, bearded Jesus that, that, you know, you go like, oh, no, he's really safe. It's a very different Jesus. In fact, if you open your Bible to the book of Revelation... Chapter 1, you see this, it's not going to be up on the screen behind you, but uh, if you have a Bible or an app, you can go to that, and you can go to uh, verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. By the way, it's not revelations, multiple revelations, it is a singular revelation, one of Jesus. This book is all about Jesus. This book is less about the end times, and it's more about Jesus and his glory. And so chapter 1 starts off talking about Jesus and his glory. Starts in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he says, you know what, I've been exiled in this imprisoned state because I really love Jesus. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice that was like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and as I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man was there. He was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of mighty waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I'm like, yes, you would. But he laid his right hand on me, because that's who he is. And he said, fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I die to behold, I will live forevermore, for I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, 
these things that you have seen and those that are and those that are about to take place after this for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand those are the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and then you see the seven golden lampstands those are the churches to which i speak see so a very different picture of jesus i would love to go back in sunday school and see some kid take like the first coming jesus and color him like second coming jesus be awesome like what are those eyes flames of fire you know, like, all right, he's not blue-eyed, got it, all right, cool. Uh, like, that'd be awesome. that's the Jesus that does the assessment, right? And we don't want to lose sight of the fact that that is the Jesus we're talking about. And so Jesus, the senior pastor of his churches, right, he walks amidst his churches. He is the senior pastor of all churches. He has something to say. So he goes to John, he says, grab a pen. What's interesting is if you have a red-letter edition, you will notice that John grabs a red pen, Right? There's a reason. This is the only time you're going to see in the entire New Testament where somebody is taking dictation from Jesus. It's the only time. The Gospels record what he said years later, things like that. This is the only time Jesus shows up, says, grab that red pen. We have something to tell these churches. I want to do an assessment. I want them to understand where they're at. I want them to understand where they're going. And of one of the churches in the list of the seven, the only church we're looking at in this list of seven is the church of Ephesus. Ephesus. In fact, of all seven churches, Ephesus is the only church you've probably heard of outside of the book of Revelation. The other six you've only heard of because of the book of Revelation. But Ephesus is very unique and very different. In fact, for this entire year, we've been doing a series looking at the church of Ephesus. In fact, you can go ahead and bring up that next slide. Um, these have been the different series looking exclusively at this one church. The church of Ephesus is the most profound, prolific, most spoken about church in the entire New Testament. You find it in Acts 19 to 21. You see the book of Ephesians was written there. You see 1 and 2 Timothy were also written to that church. The book of Revelation written to that church. And even though 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John weren't written to Ephesus, they were written from Ephesus by John. Right? So, very central church. And what we wanted to do as a church is to look at that church, look at 40 years of that church to learn from it. What they did well, what they did poorly, how their lifespan went. And so we captured it even in all these warfare icons. People are like, I can see like some nice little ladies going, they're very violent here. They like warfare. Um, we, we picked, you know, like that's my best old lady right there. All right, so I sound like Marge from The Simpsons. All right, so... All right, so we, we picked this, though, because it seems like in every era there is warfare, and every one of those eras of warfare have a distinct feel behind them, right? And, and that's what Ephesus experienced. There was different seasons, different times, different ways that they were engaged in combat. In fact, in the early days, like in the book of Acts, Paul goes, preaches in the city, a big riot ensues, and it's the government that steps in and actually rescues Paul. The government says, whoa, whoa, they're not causing the trouble, you think, and they get rid of the riot, right? That's like in 53, 55 A.D. We get to the book of Revelation in 90 A.D. Now the government is hunting the church. Domitian hates the church. Nero has already started the fight. The church is driven underground in a lot of ways. The church can't buy and sell in the marketplace because it doesn't worship the emperor God. They're opposed and oppressed, and man, they're under a lot of strain. It's a very different environment from when the church was planted 40 years earlier. So they go through these seasons and cycles, and internal to the church, there's strengths and weaknesses and problems and solutions, and they, they do all these kinds of things. And so uh, we want to understand all of that. In fact, we end this entire entire super series today by seeing what happened over the course of all of that time with the church of Ephesus what we can learn from what they did and so in Revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 1 we see the opening of the final words of the New Testament to this great profound church says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. The angel might be, it's just in Greek, it can mean messenger, whatever it might be, one of the pastors, it might be a literal angel, who knows. Uh, but it's written to that church in Ephesus. And it is the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amidst the seven golden lampstands. Now, we learned earlier that the lampstands are churches, right? So Jesus isn't just distant, far away, on a throne, watching the IMAX of the church with his 3D glasses. It's not that. He's present in his church 
He's the senior pastor of every local church. No human being is the senior pastor of a church, not really. That label is never used of people. It is only used of Jesus in the New Testament. He's senior pastor. He comes amidst his church. He looks around and he does evaluation because he knows better than anybody his church. So he writes to this church in Ephesus and starting in verse 2, he says, I know your works. And by your works, what I know is your toil and your patient endurance. By saying, I know your toil, he's saying, I know your actions. I, I know how you do things. I know how you conduct business. I know you handle things uh, behind closed doors. I know how you handle things open and in public. I know your actions. More than that, I know your endurance. I know the attitude you have when the government is against you. I know the attitude you have when you come to the marketplace and you say, I want to sell these bowls that we've made as a family. And they say, great, just burn some incense to Domitian as a god and you can come in and sell. And you decide, no, I can't do that because I can't go against my Jesus. And so you turn around and you, again, have no money, so you have no food, so your kids, again, are hungry. I know your endurance. See, we, we don't really know what that's like. We, we go to the marketplace. We're just worried that we might be kind of teased a little bit or seen as a bit archaic. They would go to the marketplace and be turned away because they wouldn't worship anyone other than, than Jesus, right? So, so Jesus looks at this church and he says, man, I, I see your toil, your endurance, your works. And so in the realm of conduct, they get an A+. Plus. I mean, if Jesus is doing assessment, he says, solid A plus on the scorecard because I see you. Not only that, he says, and I see how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested them. You've tested those who call themselves to be apostles but are not, and you found them to be false. Verse 6, he says, not only that, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I mean, think about the background of this church. Back in Acts chapter 21, Paul personally trained the elders of the church of Ephesus. He was there for three years, trains up the elders of that church during that three-year period. Here, our elders were stuck with me, all right? I'm no apostle, right? I'm a frail, broken human being that's just trying to figure out, but Paul's an apostle, and he trains these elders, and so they're a group of well-trained elders. That's what this church has. Not only that, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that Timothy was commanded, preach the word in season and out of season, when they love it, when they hate it, when they celebrate you, when they curse you, when they email you nasty things, and when they send you thank you cards, you preach the word. And so they were a well-taught congregation with a well-trained eldership. And then not only that, they received the book of Ephesians, right? The jewel of the New Testament. So they were doctrinally sound church. No wonder that when there's these false teachers and all these other things, Jesus says, man, I know you get it. I know you understand the scenario. You guys can pick out the weirdos and the wingnuts and the dipsticks theologically. I love that about you. That's what he's telling them. He says, I love that you get it. You can see it, that you know it. You can tell the difference between good news and good advice. You got off the emergent bandwagon before Rob Bell drove it over the theological cliff. Amen for you, he says. He says, I know when you watch Oprah, you can tell when Oprah's just being crazy spiritualist Oprah. Good. And you know that to be true. I know you can see that. He says, more than that, you hate syncretism. You hate the Nicolaitans who create this kind of doctrinal goulash of a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Muhammad and a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Bible, and a little bit of mysticism, and you blend it all together into a me theology. That's the Nicolaitan. He says, oh man, you, you're on top of that. You, you hate all of those things too. He says, I see that. He says in verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Right? I mean, again, think about the context. Domitian, the emperor, you know what they called him? The beast gives a lot more context to the book of Revelation that talks about the beast because Domitian was known as the beast, right? This guy was cruel, cold, and callous to the church. And yet Jesus says, man, you endure patiently. You're not embarrassed about my name. See, it's easy to use things like God, religion, faith, spirituality. You use the name Jesus, you're changing the game. And they're not ashamed of the name of Jesus. And so doctrinally, they get an A+. 
Conduct, they get an A+. Plus. Conviction, they get an A+. Plus. And you know what? They continue to maintain this. So this is 90 AD. You fast forward to 120 AD. There's a guy named Ignatius. Writes a letter to the church of Ephesus. And this is what he writes. He says, you all live according to the truth. And no heresy is home among you. Indeed, you not so much as even listen to those who speak anything except concerning Jesus Christ and truth. This church was solid. And so we can hear this list, and we're thinking, well, man, if this is like a, a report card and the teacher's comment section, it's going to be like yeah, attentive, punctual, a delight to have in class, right? Like, you're thinking that's what Jesus is going to write in the comment section because this church is rocking, right? I mean, I look at this church and go, man, I want to go to this church. I want to be like this church. These guys were just hands down solid. But then you get to verse 4, and, and you see this dreaded word, but... I've taught you about these buts, haven't I? Buts sometimes are catastrophic, right? Like, like when your boyfriend or girlfriend comes to you and says, you know what, I really think you're great, but what's that mean? You're going to be dumped in about seven seconds. That's what but means. When your boss comes to you and says, you know what, you've made an excellent contribution to the team, but you're like, here comes welfare, right? Because that but changes the game. That but says, everything I've said is important, but what I'm going to say next is more important, right? It is the sum total of the discussion. And so Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your doctrine. I know your faithfulness, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Very clear, very concise, very bold. They had full heads, they had busy hands, but they did not have robust hearts, right? And see, we can sometimes think that, you know what, if you just have the right doctrine and you have the right deeds, uh, well, that equates love. That's not true. That's not true at all. We, we don't want to replace uh, truth or action as though that's synonyms for if I have these things, then I'm, I'm truly loving Jesus says, that's not the case. You guys are really, really solid on a lot of things, but you, you don't love me. The USS Ephesus has just gotten a little off course. Just a little. But, but over the course of a long time, it takes them to all sorts of places. Now, again, could they do well with the Bible? Sure, man. They could, like, get on the American Bible Challenge, no problem. It'd be awesome. Maybe Jeff Foxworthy would be like, you guys are phenomenal, right? You get their little Awana crown, every jewel, every jewel's in there. The church, they've seen every Kirk Cameron documentary and film ever made. That's how, that's how Christian they are. You get their iPod, they, they've got podcasts of Driscoll and Sproul and Chandler. They, man, they are solid. There's no question how solid they are, right? I mean, they read the Puritans and stay awake. That's how solid these guys are, right? So, so again, it's not a debate about truth, but it is a debate about love. They love truth, but not truth that transforms. They love truth that informs. And there's a difference. There is a difference between being a scholar and being a theologian. See, a scholar says, I want information. A theologian, a true theologian says, no, 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 I want transformation. I don't want to just read the text and let it sit. I don't want to just obey the rules without an affection for God. I want true affection for God, which is why I know the text, which is why I play by the rules. It's because I love Jesus that much. That's the heart. And that's the heart that this church had lost, man. Again, they knew all the answers. They had all the information, but it had lost its affections. It had lost a deep sense of what love is really all about. In fact, the church I trained in and first pastored in was that church it was totally that church right and 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 you could see all the time the the sense of that right it was like we love jesus here you know, you're like yeah he's scary you know like like and, and everything was about we're right and all the other churches are wrong and and we we teach the bible here where those other churches don't and don't get me wrong there's a lot of churches that don't but there's some that do they just aren't like you and you don't have to decide because they're not like you they're not good uh, but but the church i was in it was very much like no no, no we love truth we love truth we love truth and after a while it'd be really easy to go like 
but do we love Jesus? I mean, I get that we love truth, but could we really be seen as, as really loving Jesus? See, what, what I find is that churches that, that make much of the Bible run this risk. And as I was kind of working through this message this week, and I was thinking about redemption and going through this assessment, um, I'm like, this is, this is probably the thing that we would most risk. Because we love the book, man. Right? The book wins every time. We preach the book, we hold up the book, we proclaim the book, we're not ashamed of the book, and the risk can be that pretty soon we almost worship the book more than the author of the book. And we start to think that we cut it more straight than everybody else cuts it straight. And that we're more right than everybody else is, and that's the danger. This is in part why the, the vision of Redemption Church is a threefold vision of missional theologians for the glory of God. Right? That's why we do. We say we, we love Jesus and his Bible. We love Jesus and his kingdom, which is to reach the lost. And we love Jesus and his glory, which is worship. And we keep all three of those equally critical. We don't want to elevate one above the other, right? Because we want to make sure that, that what we're really engaged in is making sure that all three are highly valued, that all three are equal. So it doesn't become, well, Bible's more than these other things. Because when we do that, that's where we begin to risk losing our first love. It just is. Now, this happens over incremental periods. I mean, it's not everything at once. It's like a marriage, you know? It's, I don't know of anybody who's in a rough marriage where I talk to them, and I go, well, what happened? And they're like, I don't know. It was going great. Then one day I woke up, and I'm like, let's go to war. <sighs> right? I just want to fight with my spouse into a bad marriage. It's usually little things over a long time that bring drift. So the church in Ephesus had little things over a long time that brought drift. They loved the truth. They were very focused, very obedient. But they lost their love. And I find in the individual Christian life or in a Christian church, um, it's not hard to come to the same place. It's just not hard. It's easy to get there if we're not aware. So as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know what? Uh, we need to look at some of the things that can make that happen. Some of the things that we inadvertently begin to do that after the course of time bring us to a loss of our first love. And so I came up with 10 things this week. There's certainly more than 10. But I think 10 things that as I was thinking about, I'm like, yeah, these are ones that if we're, if we're not aware, and we begin to go down these roads, we, we begin to lose the love. And so maybe more than one of these can be true to a church, or maybe more than one of these is true to us, or maybe only one of them is true to us, or maybe none of them are true, which is awesome, amen, but we should be aware of the things that happen that cause us to lose our first love. And so what are those things? Well, the first one, I think that is sometimes um, the demise, particularly of individuals, is that we forget our relationship to God is three-dimensional. We forget that our relationship to God is personal, communal, and cultural. In other words, what happens is when Jesus brings you into a saving relationship with him, there's three facets to that that show you love him. One is you personally love him. You're connected to him. The second is that you are communal. You love what Jesus loves. Jesus loves his church. And third, you love who Jesus came for in love, which is the lost, your culture. See, and if you keep all three in perspective, you say, yes, I want to love Jesus, and I want to love Jesus' church, and I want to love Jesus' lost world, then you know what? You are functioning in love. That's first love. But what can happen sometimes, we go, well, I'm more of a two-dimensional kind of guy. Right? And so we kind of come up with a formula. It's me and Jesus plus me and his church minus culture. And, and, and what you have out of that is a church that's filled with a bunch of ventilator Christians. You end up with a ventilator church that eventually is going to die. Because nobody's into reproduction. Nobody's in taking it out to somebody else. It's going to go as far as your generation. If your heart is, it's me and Jesus, me and Jesus' church, but not me and Jesus' lost world. It's a ventilator church. In fact, the first church I was a lead pastor in, after seven years, I sat down with our elders, and I told them that. I said, you know what? I love Beacon Bible Church. I love it. You guys love the truth. I love the truth. We love all of this. We are crazy and grown. We are worse than like rednecks in the South. We're so ungrown. So we're a ventilator church. We're going to die because we don't want to reach the lost. We say we do, but we really don't do anything to do that. That was a rough elder meeting. And you know what Jesus did with that information? He killed us. 
He literally killed our church. Not through division, not through discord. He killed it in the most beautiful way possible. Jesus knew that we were a ventilator church. We weren't willing to take the steps that were necessary to get off the ventilator, so he just accelerated our death. But in a strange way, he merged us with another church. And so what we brought to the table in that merge was a love of truth and a stability of leadership. And what the other church brought was a love of the lost. And he bolted us together as a dysfunctional family. And for about 18 months, oh yeah, roller coasters in the Holy Spirit, baby. I mean, it was... It was a rough merge. In essence, Jesus killed both churches in his love and grace. He just put them both down and made a new church. Now, that new church is a thriving, growing, beautiful church, but sort of took to death. And here's the thing. Jesus will close churches. He will. Right? And so if it's, again, it's, it's, it's me and Jesus plus Jesus and his church minus me and his culture, might be a ventilator. There's others that are different, and, and it's uh, me and Jesus plus uh, the culture that Jesus wants to reach minus Jesus. And, and you might go, nah, that doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. So it, it might be really, it's more like church and culture, but it's not really a high view of who Christ is. You just look at the mainline liberal churches, and you found it, Right? They're the ones that are so passionate to reach the lost, they forget Jesus in the introduction. Right? It's where they look at the Bible and go, ah, that doesn't count. We're so busy trying to, to, to reach out to people where they're at. We'll just accept where they're at as being acceptable. And there's no consideration of Jesus. And so that's a way a church can lose its love. Some it's losing a love for the lost. Some it's losing a love for Jesus. Still, there's other churches that say, um, well, we are people that say, I love me and Jesus. I love Jesus reaching culture, uh, but I don't love the communal aspect. I don't love church. I don't like church. I don't even want to go to church. There's those, right? And, and, and so their whole thing is to be like, you know what? Yeah, I, I'm not going to be in a church because, again, that just bogs it down. It's organized religion. It's me and Jesus and him to culture, and I just bypass the church. And I look at that and I go, you're bypassing a pretty big chunk, I know some people think the church is sort of optional or, 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 or less mission critical, um, but keep in mind that when we say, I like Jesus and I like the lost, I don't like the church, what you're saying to Jesus is, I like you and I like the lost, but I don't like your wife. I just don't like your wife. Now, if somebody comes to me and says, Matt, I really like you, but I don't like your wife, well, I don't like you. Right? Right? I mean, honestly, you've got to keep in perspective. Who did Jesus die for? The church. What does he nurture as a bride? The church. Right? So we can't just have the flexibility that says, uh, I'm going to take any two of the three or any one of the three to exhibit true love to Jesus. We love Jesus. We love Jesus' church. We love Jesus' lost world. We love it all. And it's when we lose one, two, or three, we're losing love. And so we don't want to lose that love. Another way we can lose love is when we convert Jesus to an iconic poster child of religion instead of seeing him as the active, personal, senior pastor that he is. It's not hard in the Christian world to have Jesus up like this Lenin-esque poster of this is what we fight for, this is what we give to, this is what we're all about, but really in the deep down innards of daily personal living, it's really not about Jesus. He becomes a great thing to fight over but not one to really be in pursuit of, right? Uh, this is where you, you have, even in, in, in the world of churches, where, again, they love the word more than they love the word, right? So it's, it's less about Jesus, and it's more about the text, and it's more about the details. Uh, I remember one time I was reading a scholar that called it Bible-believing deism, where, where it's not the active, present, living Lord. It's just he's, he's somewhere. He's the reason but, but I'm more focused on other little details, and it's less about Jesus, right? That's how we can lose our love. A third way we can lose our love is we replace the Holy Spirit with doctrine or legalism. That's how we can lose our love. We replace the Holy Spirit with doctrine or legalism. Doctrine is what the Bible says. Legalism is what the Bible doesn't say, but we all wish it did say, right? That's the difference. And, and we can get lulled into thinking, well, well, if you, got, if you got good doctrine, you're not overriding the Holy Spirit. Sure you can. Sure you can. 
right? Because you can get all about the doctrine at the cost of the one whom the doctrine reveals. You can get all about doctrine at the cost of believing the Spirit needs to inform the heart and mind of the deep things of God. You can get all about doctrine and not about the Holy Spirit when you start thinking it's all about your self-discipline instead of you walking in the Spirit for Him to work in you. I know some places where it's so much about doctrine, they undermine the role of the Spirit in the church today. There's all these things He doesn't do because doctrine says. Right? So it's not hard to do. Legalism is the other way you can do it, by just adding more rules and regulations that the Bible never authorizes and holding everybody to it. Again, the church I trained in was awesome at both. Awesome at both. It was Father, Son, and Holy Bible, not Holy Spirit. And it was Father, Son, and Holy Church, which meant a Father, Son, and Holy Bible doctrine, and Father, Son, and Holy Church was legalism, and they leveraged those all the time. To where in our church, I remember, uh, more often than not, you felt fearful than hopeful. Right? Because like, oh, how am I going to get in trouble next? And it drove sin underground and it elevated pride. Elevated pride. I mean, it was so weird, man. Like, you would go to a small group, and the small group wouldn't sit around talking about how Jesus is so good and the Bible is so awesome and everything else. Uh, they, they would have a little bit of that, but it was always about how, and we're more right than every other church in town. Oh, like, Calvary Chapel. You know, like, and you're like, wait, slow down. They're like reaching a lot of people for Jesus, though. Yeah, but you hear what they teach. How would I hear? I'm always here afraid for my life. I wouldn't go there. I'm afraid I'd die, you know, because what you guys say, right? So it's not hard to do. It's not hard to do. In fact, as a church, we use a, a tool. It's this wheel right here. Uh, and, and this is used in a lot of different ways. But, but down here at the bottom, this formative part, um, that's where Christians really start to firm up their doctrine and firm up their beliefs. And, you know, they, they, they just get more solidified at that point. Now, here's the key about Christian growth. It starts when you're curious. You don't know Jesus. You're curious about Jesus. You're not saved. But then there's this moment where you become saved, which is why there's this hard, fast line. You go from curious to saved. And when you become saved at first, man, it is all enthusiasm. It's like, woo! You know, and you're just, you just love it. It's great. It's all fresh and new. You're looking at people who have been Christians for 10 years. You're like, why do they look so sour? I'm so happy. You know, and, 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 but you're there, right? And you start ripping through the enthusiastic stage. But then you get to the formative stage. And the formative stage is where, again, you start reading the Bible more. You plug into a Bible study. You start learning the Christian lingo and this Christian feel and everything else. And it's a great stage, provided you keep moving. But when you don't keep moving, you're like a marble that gets stuck in the bottom. Right? Where it's all about truth and it's all about conviction, it's all about doctrine, it's all about holding the line, right? Which is all great stuff, provided you add the other stuff to it. But sometimes people don't keep moving. And the crazy thing when you get stuck down in here is if it's a whole circle going toward Christ likeness, uh, in one way you're halfway there, but in another way you're as far away from Christ as possible, depending on how you look at it. You're also as far away from caring about the curious and the lost as humanly possible if you get stuck down there. And that's sometimes how we lose our first love. We lose a love for Christ authentically. We lose a love for the lost purely because we've tucked ourselves so far away in the name of Christ that we just sort of lose them, right? We replace Father, Son, and Spirit in their mission with our own intentions or agenda. And so Jesus says, man, these are ways that you can lose your first love. Another way we can lose our first love, number four, we replace and for or. When linking words such as love, truth, holiness, grace, mind, emotion, etc. So in other words, instead of it being love and truth, it becomes love or truth. Right? And nobody says it that boldly, but if you get around like the, you know, like the Bible-only people, like where I was trained, um, and you'll say, well, you know, we really got to love them. Oh, but don't forget about truth. Like, trust me, I haven't. Don't kill me. You know, but, but they almost handle it like, oh, truth is more important than love. Right? And you go to any particular camp, and they'll always treat their thing as the more important thing. Holiness is more important than grace. Truth more than love. Or you invert it. There's some people like, we love love. Truth is in the way. Right? Um, and so we polarize things when there should be an and. 
There needs to be an and. When we're not buckling these together with the and, you know what? We can lose our love. Another way, five. This is 5A. Five's got two parts. We see the unbelieving world as opponents instead of as opportunities. We want to lose our first love. We see those who need Jesus as a problem as opposed to a group of people that are estranged from their God and the only way they can be fixed, restored, redeemed is through Jesus. We see them as opposition. Now here's what happens in Christianity. There's two different types of shirts you can choose to wear. You can wear a jersey. Yes. Thank you, number three. Um, or you can wear just a, a ref's jersey. You can either wear a player's jersey or a ref's jersey. But the differences are really simple. Player's jersey puts points on the board. Ref's jersey just calls fouls. Right? And so as Christians, when we think about the lost world, if we spend more time blowing a whistle and yelling at our television because this group, that agenda, these people, whatever else, are against us and oppressing us and opposing us, and this is not the America I grew up in, you have a referee's jersey on. Congratulations. Congratulations. You're throwing yellow flags. We're going to buy you a yellow flag. And just throw it at the television. Just throw it at the newspaper. Throw it at whatever you want to throw it at because you're just calling fouls. But if we slap on a player's jersey, we want to put points on the board. Right? And that's what Jesus calls us to is points on the board. So we shouldn't dislike the unsaved world. We should love the unsaved world. We want to score points, not just call penalties. There's the flip to this, though, where we see the unbelieving world as okay instead of KO'd apart from the gospel, right? So you have two jerseys again, but what's the difference? Now your job is to overturn calls. So, uh, you know, you, you go to church and you hear the Bible says, you know what, only by Jesus is anyone saved. And you step back and you're like, you know, on further reflection, red flag, I, I don't, I really, I, my Buddhist friend's a good person. They're nice, they're kind, they're good to their family. And, and, and so you become the one that decides something different. And you know what? That's not love either. To say, well, I'm, I'm being loving because I'm being tolerant. Let me, let me help you understand. Tolerance is not love. Tolerance is not love. Tolerance is literally the opposite of love. Tolerance is to say, I have no passion about it. No passion whatsoever. I'm so cool. I'm cool as ice, baby. See, Jesus... He's long-suffering, but he's not tolerant, right? Which means he suffers long, but not forever. And so he loves the lost, but he isn't going to just be like, hey, they're not lost at some point. He's not going to be like, it's all good now. He says, no, man, I, I love the lost, but the lost are lost, and I want to see them be saved. And so to truly love is to share. To truly love is to go after. To truly love is to engage in mission. So if we're indifferent to the lost or we're tolerant of the lost in their state, both of those things are not, are not love. Sixth way we can sometimes fall into not loving. We see the world as something we seek instead of something we reach. We see it as something we seek instead of something we reach. Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul is writing in prison. It's the end of his life and he talks about a man named Demas who used to be his fellow church planter but has left him because he what? Loves his present world. He loved the present world more than he loved what Jesus was up to. It's where the love of self and the love of money and the love of pleasure get in the way of our love of Jesus and love of his mission and love of his kingdom. And we lose our priorities on love. And I look at my own life, and this is still that thing where I go, man, you know, sometimes I get more excited about a trip or a gadget or a circumstance or an impending whatever than I do about the things of Jesus. This is a great way when I start to realize, whoa, man, I'm losing my first love here when I, I, I'm, I'm way more ready to cheer on my feet because number three just took a good 22-yard run, right? Then, then Jesus has conquered all. Right? Now, I'm not saying don't get on your feet for Russell. You should, all right? But you should also get on your feet for Jesus, right? Shows our love. Number seven, we can sometimes lose our first love when we see the church as an event we attend versus a family that we serve. Right? We can see the church as this organization, institution, this, this thing, this spectator sport, 
as opposed to a family that we are ingrained with and grafted into. Now, let me say this. If you are what we call the curious in this room, you don't know Jesus, you know what? It, it, the church is for you. It's all about you in that sense, right? If you've been a Christian for 72 hours or less, uh, this whole thing, it's for you. If you've been a Christian more than four days, it's no longer about you, all right? It's not. Because, again, this isn't the thing where we just come like baby birds and like, feed me, right? It's, like, it's not like that. That's going to stick, I know. Um, it's, 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 it's like a family, right? You are dependent upon and you depend on others. That's the church. Right? That's just the way it works. It's no different than in my family, right? Like my family, my wife, my kids, they depend on me. But you know what? I depend on them too. It isn't just purely on me. They're not just spectators to dad, right? There's this mutual beneficial relationship. Same thing for every Christian in a church. If it's all about us just coming, sitting, watching, and leaving, and we don't contribute back, we're not being a family. We're just being consumers. But the church isn't meant to be a consumer thing. It's meant to be an invested thing because it's a family, not just an institution. That's how it's designed to work. And I can tell you as a church, man, there's always needs, man. We need people to help us set up and tear down. Our crews are stretched so thin. Redemption uh, kids, they, they need teachers back there. I mean, you could join a regroup, just plugging in, connecting. Because again, you're dependent upon and you're dependent upon others in the dynamic of the church. And when we lose that, we might be losing our first love. Another one, number eight, we see worship as a personal preference versus a grateful expression. Personal preference versus a grateful expression. Um, it is, again, nearing Christmas time, and in the Boswell home, the conversation has started this week about what do I want for Christmas, right? So it's like, all right, everybody, put your list together. So everybody's putting their list together and everything else. And, and, and so Ellen's kind of working it through. And I can see Ellen having some things she might be interested in. So uh, let's just say for simplicity that Ellen says, you know what, I know what I want. I would love like a really nice espresso machine. I mean, just a really nice one, quality, solid, everything else. And she goes, that would be the only thing I really want as a gift. I said, fantastic, that is awesome. And Christmas Day rolls in and we're passing out the presents and Ellen has the one gift and I give her the one gift and she opens it up and it's a Mossberg 590 special purpose 12 gauge flat black, baby. Yeah! She's looking at it. It's not an espresso machine. We'll grind beans, baby. All right, so... But imagine if I said, but it's so cool. It's the gift I've always wanted. I've been waiting for this, and now it's yours. Right? I'll be sleeping outside. Why? Because I'm not considering what she likes. I'm considering what I like. You know what worship should be about? What Jesus likes, not what I like. Here's the big problem in the American consumer-driven church of whom I am guilty. We like to make it about our preference more than we like to make it about Jesus. I get we all have our taste and style, and I get sometimes that you're like, it's too loud. And the person next to you, it's too quiet, right? Like, I get all of that. And I'm not saying there isn't things that get in the way, and that, but you know, here's the bottom line. Our primary focus should be, what does Jesus love? Because I love Jesus. And if Jesus loves his people, loving him and gratitude for what he's done, we should just love to do that however it's coming our way. The more we start thinking about what does Jesus prefer more than what I prefer really frees us in worship. Right? When, when people will say to me or email me, they're like, you know what, I just can't worship at redemption. I'm like, do you have nothing to worship Jesus over then? Like, I, like I get it. Maybe that's not your style, but really, I just can't worship because it's not my thing. FYI, worship is not about us. It's just not about us. It's about Jesus, right? But if it's becoming about us, maybe we're losing our first love. Number nine, we can lose our first love when we embrace the motto, it's all about Mises, not about Jesus, right? That's another one that will stick, all right? Sounds like Jar Jar Binks saying it, but I, you know... Misa, uh, you know, but it's true. Uh, when, when, when life becomes all about me, 
which it does on occasion, and my loving wife will say, how did this just become about you? I'm like, because it's all about me. <laughs> you know, um, you know life, life gets pretty dark pretty fast. I, I complain a lot more. I critique a lot more. I shut down a lot more. Um, I, I allow my circumstances to direct me a whole lot more. Um, where if it was all about Jesus, then every one of those things would be an opportunity to glorify him. But when it's all about me, it's just an opportunity for me to get irritated right, and not consider him in the same way. And so that's how we can lose our first love. And then the tenth way that we can forget our first love is we forget that repent is an in-house word for an imperfect church. We forget that repentance is an in-house word. When we're looking down and around and in versus up, um, uh, it, it can create all kinds of mess where we're not loving in the way that we should or could or are called to, that kind of thing. Um, and so again, the discouragement is going to come easy. So the most liberating word is the word repent, which is why Jesus says in verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I love that because he says, uh, first of all, recall where you've fallen from. Remember those days when you were excited about Jesus. Remember those days where you loved the lost. Remember those days where you couldn't wait to make the investment. Remember that. Now look at your current state and repent. Repent is really simple. Uh, it just means repent, right? It just means, Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. This is, I'm foolish and this is stupid and I'm going the wrong direction. I want to go the right direction. So help me go the right direction. And then what do they do? They rekindle what they had lost. They go back to the things that they were doing. Right? That's what Jesus tells this church in Ephesus. Right? Get back to love and truth and passion and discipline and delight. Get back to all of those things. Now, what if they don't? Well, Jesus says, well, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What Jesus says right there in very profound terms is that he would rather have a closed church than a theologically accurate but emotively absent he would rather have it closed than it to be, again, chosen, frozen, right? Clear as ice and just as cold. He doesn't want that. He wants something different. He wants a church of true love. That's why he says in verse 7, but to the one who conquers, the one who conquers apathy or legality or personal centrality, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. He says, if you don't repent and you just kind of stay on your trajectory of not loving, you know what? I'm going to close it down. But if you turn to me and repent, I will bless you, not only in this life, but in the life to come. You will have eternal blessing for some of your temporal suffering. Get back to loving me. Get back to loving me. That's what he says. And so what happened after the red ink flowed in the church of Ephesus. Well, in about 120 AD, Ignatius writes his letter, and this is what he writes. He says, Onesimus greatly commends you for your obedience to God because you live according to the truth. He says, even more than that, I am overjoyed because you love God more than anything else. In your harmonious love, Jesus is sung, and you show yourselves to be brothers by your forbearance towards those who persecute. You know, it's so cool we get this other glimpse. It's not in the Bible. It's a glimpse shortly after the Bible. But you see that after 40 years of being a church, they had lost their love, and after another 30 years, they had reclaimed it. Love and truth, right? Loving the lost who are persecuting them, loving the church which Jesus loves, loving their God above all else, singing to the greatness of Jesus, and retaining all the great foundational doctrines that they're meant to believe. That is a healthy church. So what happened to Ephesus from there? I want you to bring up this next picture. This is St. John's Basilica. About 600 AD is when it ended. When did the church of Ephesus end? About 600 AD. The whole community ended at that point. So here, here's the lesson. Um, every generation, every season, every church, probably every year, needs to stop, look, every Christian needs to stop, Look and evaluate. Because where you can be solid one year, you can lose it the next. Where you can have it at one point, it can evaporate down the road if you're not diligent and focused and passionate for the things that Jesus is passionate for. The church was stable, then loose, then stable, then loose, and eventually it's 
It's something you go take pictures of as ruins. If there is in focus, tenacity, assessment, and evaluation. This is why Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It means we're always looking, always asking, always raising questions. So where does redemption fit? Right? Where are we at? Well, here's what's cool. Um, since we've had somebody do an assessment, I won't read to you the entire assessment. It's multiple pages, but I'm going to read to you the opening statement of an assessment. Now, this guy isn't Jesus. His name's Dave. Not the same. Um, <laughs> Dave's a good guy, though. We like Dave. Dave's an honest guy. This is what Dave writes about redemption. He says, Redemption Church is a vibrant, passionate, and Christ-centered presence in the heart of Duval. In every interaction with the people of this church, I have had an overwhelming sense of community, in fact, a community of real people with a real faith. Even though Redemption Church is just two years old, there is a sense of anticipation and excitement for the future as they move from infancy into maturity as a presence in this community. Warmth, friendliness, and energy flow from this healthy, highly relational, multi-generational church. There is a committed core of leaders, consistent biblical, relational, and creative teaching, and an obvious desire to settle for nothing less than authentic, theologically sound, and Christ-honoring worship. Creativity and innovation are welcomed as they complement the mission of the church, but are certainly second to authentic, passionate, and biblically sound ministry. They are not driven toward a particular demographic or denomination. This church is deeply focused on being a light in the community. That's an awesome review. That is you guys. Right? That is Redemption Church. I, I, I read that, you know, like I said, tell us, but I don't know if I want to know. And then I read it, and I'm like, I'm so glad I know. I'm so glad I know. These are outside eyes. In fact, he was here among us uh, one of the recent Sundays, and, and I didn't tell you because they didn't want you on your best behavior. Right? And you know what was cool? You were on your regular behavior, which is awesome. It's awesome. I am blessed to be a part of this place. I'm blessed to be a part of Redemption Church. We are blessed what Jesus is doing in this place. But you know what? We shouldn't just settle. Right? Every chance we get, we should look, we should think, we should pray, we should ask Jesus, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to be? What do you want us to do? How can we do it all for you? Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you for Redemption Church. I thank you for the church of Ephesus that we've been allowed to dissect for literally the year. Seeing all their warts and challenges and, and then how that plays for us. I pray that you are truly our first love and the things that you love, we would love. You love your Father. You love the Holy Spirit. You love yourself. And I pray that we would love our God who is three in one. You love your church. I pray we would love your church. You love the lost. I pray that we would love the lost. I pray that we would love you with our affection and we would love you with our tenacity and we would love you with our self-discipline and we would love you with the fullness of our person that we would not settle for anything than a robust love for you. And so show us what that means. Coach us in your grace and love. We thank you, Jesus. We love you and we need you in your good name.